let's say you want to create a new Rails application. You do this by typing Rails space new space and then the name of your application. It runs through, creates some files, and runs bundle. And then you're ready to change your directory using CD into your test app folder. If you look at the contents of this folder, there's several files. However, you can just type Rails server or Rails S for short to start up your Rails application. And then navigating your browser to your local host, port 3000, you're now running your Rails application and you can see it on your web browser. But where do we go from here? So today we're going to look at the structure and the hierarchy of the Rails application and what's generated by default and the main points that you need to know to get started. So there's two main guiding principles with Rails. The first is don't repeat yourself or the dry principle. And this is essentially saying that you don't want to have the same lines of code over and over all throughout your application. If you find yourself doing that, then you can usually extract it so that this block of code is being reused. The second guiding principle is convention over configuration. And this is basically saying that Rails is taking a lot of assumptions over the configuration of your Rails application so you don't have to worry about it. An example of this is that the Rails application by default has the header set to not allow iframing. And while this is typically a good convention, it may not suit your application's needs and you can always change it. So it's basically a set of default configurations which you do have the ability to override. And while Rails is not a true MVC architecture, it does kind of follow its pattern. And MVC stands for Model View Controller. Within Rails, your model is handled by the Active Record class, and that is just a subset or a library within your Rails package that handles all the different data points. Then you have your view, which is your action view, and that's the presentation to the end user. And then you have a controller, which is handled by action controller, and that is your decision making. So all the decisions from your models and what's rendered from your views will be handled through your action controller. And your model handles the data. So this is usually where you have a connection to a database and you store all your data from. It also handles the business logic. An example of this would be if you have a list of blog posts, you may have some that are published, some are not published, and you can create a scope to only return the published ones so that can be passed from your controller into your views to then display all the lists of blog posts that are published. The view handles the presentation. It is passive, so you want to avoid adding any kind of business logic into your view. There are certain cases where you do have to toggle between is this true or is this true, but that's a little bit different. However, if you find yourself having to do calculations within your views, then you're probably doing something wrong here. And your controller handles all the decisions. So the controller will call out to the active record and pull in the necessary records or data. It also performs any kind of functions, including sending the command to save that data. It also handles the rendering or the response generation from your controller back to the end user. So a sequence diagram will look something like this, where you have a browser making an initial request. This goes into the Rails routes, and once it finds a match, it then sends the request with the parameters over to the controller. The controller may then get data from the model, and then it may also save that data from the model. Once those actions are complete, the controller will then send over to the view the request to generate the views, and then a response is sent back to the browser. So this is just a very high-level overview. There are several steps in between that goes on, but for getting started, that's not really too, too important to know. 
So opening up your Rails application folder, you'll see several different files and folders. The app folder contains the controllers and models, the views, helpers, mailers, and assets for your application. You'll focus on this folder for most of your development. The bin folder contains the Rails scripts that start your application and can contain other scripts that you use to set up, update, or deploy or run your application. The configuration folder is where you'll configure your application routes, database, and more. It has a different environment configuration files for you to tweak as well. Any kind of initializers for a gem is also usually placed within the config initializers folder. The config.ru file is the rack configuration for your rack-based server used to start the application. While this file is important, you shouldn't really have to mess with it. The DB folder or the database folder contains your current database schema as well as your database migration files. And your database migration files are simply just files that will create tables and columns as you generate them within your application. The gem file and gem file lock, these are the files that allow you to specify what gem dependencies are needed for your Rails application. These files are used by the bundler gem. The gem file log is basically used to freeze whatever gem version you have set currently for that application. So if you run a bundle update, it'll update all those gem files. However, if you share your application, the other user can simply type bundle and it'll install the gems and the specific version of that gem, even if a newer one is available based on what's included in that gem file. You shouldn't ever have to edit that gem file lock because it is automatically managed by your bundler. The lib folder is where you can put extended modules for your application. The log folder will contain your application logs. The public folder is the only folder seen by the world. So that means anything that you put in here would be accessible to the world. Whenever you compile your assets, it'll create a cached copy within your public folder that would then be used to serve out your assets. And the assets are your images, JavaScript files, and your CSS files. The reg file locates and loads tests that can be run from the command line. The task definitions are defined throughout the components of Rails. Rather than changing the reg file, you should add your own tasks in the lib folder under the task directory of your application. The readme file is a brief instruction manual for your application. You should edit this file to tell others what your application does, how to set it up, and so forth. The test folder is going to contain all your unit tests, fixtures, and other test apparatus. Any files relating to testing should go within this folder. The TMP folder or temp, that is where temporary files are created. So cache files or PIDs, which is the process ID for files, are stored here. And the vendor folder is a place for all third-party code. So if you have a JavaScript file from a vendor, then it's usually recommended to throw it into this folder. And once you open it up, you'll see that it has an assets and then a place for the JavaScript and style sheets. You can also create a folder for images or fonts as well. So let's create a new view for our application. The first thing that we need to do is generate a controller. So I'll type Rails G or generate, you can type out generate controller. And then I'm just going to call this controller visitors. And then we can pass in the actions of our visitors. So if we just want to call this index or home, you can list out several different things. However, typically just for a visitors page or your landing page, I'll just call this index. And this will create a few different files. First, you'll see that under our app folder and the controllers folder, we've created the visitors controller.rb file. And this is the controller file for our visitors. We also have a view. So under our app, views, and the visitors folder, we have the index 
.html.erb file. And this is going to be the view corresponding to our index action. And then there's a few other things that I won't cover in this episode, but it does create your tests under the test folder. And within the application folder, it also creates some helpers. It's a method or function that really doesn't fit in your controller. It doesn't really fit in your model, but you do need it within your application to maintain the dry principle. So you'll put it in the helper instead. And it creates its own visitor's helper file because once we get into a much larger application, having the segregation of code in the correct places will be important for maintainability. Then under the assets folder, it created a JavaScript file as well as a style sheet. And there's a few other changes that was not displayed within the console. If we look under the config folder and under the routes, you'll see that it also created this line for get visitors index. And this means that it'll look for an HTTP verb for get. It'll go to the visitors controller and it'll go to the index action. If we want to change our homepage or the landing page, so whenever someone goes to the website, you want to have it go to a specific controller and action, you can call root to visitors index. And this will go to the visitors controller and the index action. And under the app folder controllers, you'll see that we have our visitors controller. And within here, we have the class definition of visitors controller. And this inherits from the application controller which is just another file. If we look at this other file, the application controller is a class and it inherits from the action controller base. So when you define a class, you're able to inherit from another file. And this is important because if we have this protect from forgery from our application controller, we would have to put this into every single controller that we create. However, sticking to the dry principle, we can simply allow our visitors controller to inherit from the application controller and then it'll automatically get that protect from forgery. And within the index action, we can do stuff here. And we would do something like getting a record or getting any kind of data from our models. And then we would display the web page through the index view. And under the views, visitors folder index.html.erb, you'll see that we have just a template for the visitors index and it shows where you can find this file. So whenever we go to our landing page, the routes will send us to the visitors controller and then the visitors controller will directly render us this file. However, there is a little gotcha here that you may not realize that this file also is being rendered within a layouts. And under the layouts folder in the views, there is an application.html.erb. If you open this up, which is used for the cross-site request forgery protection, we're then including a style sheet link tag, which is going to pull our application.css file. Then same for our JavaScript. Those files are simply under your app assets, JavaScripts, the application.js file, and then under your style sheets, the application.css file. And then we come down to the yield block and the yield block is going to basically put in whatever is in our visitors index file will be inserted into this block. So this means that if you make any kind of style sheet changes within your application.css file, or if you insert anything into your application.js file, that'll automatically be loaded whenever we visit our landing page because of this layout file. So if we go back to our web page, we can see that we're still on our local host port 3000. And if we refresh our page, you'll see that we're now taken to our visitors index. 
And you can see that this content is the same that we had in our index.html.erb file. And we can simply make changes as we need. Go back to our page and simply just refresh and you'll see the changes live. The only time you would need to restart your Rails application is if you made a change to your gem file using a new gem or if you changed something within your configuration folder. There are a few other cases, however, generating a new controller, view, or model, you typically don't need to restart your Rails application for those kind of changes. And the last thing I want to show you is that we can also use the Rails generator to create a scaffold. And a scaffold is basically going to be your controller, your view, your model, and a couple other additional files. So if I want to create a controller called users, we can then create a first name, and we're going to make this a string. By default, it does go to string, so you don't have to enter that in. And then we'll create a last name. So this will create a scaffold. It's going to create our users controller and a user model. And these are the attributes that will be created with the model. And attributes are simply just a column or field within a table. So once we run our migrations, it'll create a users table and it'll create these two columns within that table. So running the scaffold, you'll see that we have a lot more files now. It did create our database migrations and now it's created a models and notice that it's a singular user. We did create a user here. However, it is still singular here. In our routes, it added this resources routes and we'll look at that one in a second here too. And then if you look at our controller, it did use the plural form of user. So we have our users controller. And then within our view, under the app folder views, we have a users folder. And then we have the index, edit, show, and new. And also a partial, which is indicated by the underscore as the first character. And a partial is basically a snippet of code that will probably be used for the edit page as well as the new page because our show page and our index page aren't really going to be making changes to our model, it's just displaying that data. And then some additional files that were created by default, we have our test units, our helpers, JBuilder, which is useful for an API response, and our asset files. So before we can refresh our application, we have to run rake, db, migrate, and this will run the migrations to see if there's anything pending, and you'll see that we needed to create the table and it automatically created the table for us. And by default, Rails does use SQLite for your database. And that's something that I usually change the first thing. And you can also change it when creating your application. If you type Rails new and then your application name, and then you can pass dash D and then the name of your database connector that you want to use, whether it's MySQL 2, Postgres, or whatever else. We can run rake routes to see all the different routes that's created. So if you remember before, the Rails scaffold generator created this line resources users, and this is what it actually generates. So it's just a shorthand for creating all these different paths to the specific controller and action. So you'll see that on our get request, we are able to get the list of users, and that's just with forward slash users, and this takes us to our users index action. We can then create new users with the forward slash users slash new. And this takes us to the users new. Same for edit, except now we're passing in this parameter ID. And this ID is going to be the ID of the record that we are wanting to edit. And similar for getting the details of user or our show action, we also still need to pass in the ID. 
And then we have a few different verbs for patch, which is going to be used for updating the record. Also put can be used for updating the record. And you still have to pass in the ID. Then you have delete, which will destroy a record. And then at the top we have post, which will be used for creating a new record. So within our test app, if we go to forward slash users, you'll see that this takes us to our users index. We can create a new user, and this will take us to our user's new action. It's now showing this. We can then create a test user. And once we hit create, it'll make a post back to our application, and it'll call the create action. Once it has created the user, it then takes us to the show action. And you can see up at the top, we have our users, and then an ID of one. We can edit this user, and once we click the edit button, this takes us to the edit action. We can then update, which will then make a patch back to our server, and that redirects us to our show again. We can click back, and this will take us back to our index action of our list of users. And from here, we can then click on show to take us to the show edit, or destroy, which would then delete the record. You can see that the Rails scaffold generator created many more lines of code. And the first thing that you'll notice is that the user's controller has this before action. And each one of these different methods are considered an action within your user's controller. So before this method is called, it's calling this method set user. And it's only going to do it on the show, edit, update, and destroy actions. And this set user is a private method. So if we scroll down to the very bottom, you'll see that we have this private, which means that this set user is not accessible, so it can only be called from within this controller. And here we're setting an instance variable, which the instance variable will be accessible within our views. And we're setting this equal to our user, which this references back to our model. And then we're calling dot find on our model. And then we're passing in the params ID. And this params ID is the parameter that was passed in. So the forward slash one that we saw in our URL translates to this params ID. In our index action, you see that we set a users and we set this to user.all. So again, we're setting an instance variable. We're setting it to user.all, which this will return an array of all the users in our database. The show action is empty because the only thing that we need to return for our show action is that user. And thanks to this before action or the dry principle, we are not looking up this user multiple times throughout our code. Instead, we have it written only once, but this before action will set it. So that is the same as if we had set our at user equals to user.find and then the params ID. We could have this for each one of our actions and it would have done the same thing. However, because of the dry principle, we don't need to do this and said we can use the before action. The new action is setting a user to, again, the user model, but then dot new. So this will create a new instance of a user record it hasn't saved it or anything yet, but if you remember, once a user submits a form, it'll call the create action. And notice the create action is much different than the other actions. So the first thing that we do is we set our user equals to a new user, but now we're passing in this user params. We'll look at this in a second. And then depending on the response, whether it is a JSON or HTML, and if the user was saved, it'll redirect to the at user, 
which this will redirect to the show action. If it did not save the user successfully through a validation error or a conflict, then it'll render a new page. So if you don't have an API within your application, it could really look as simple as something like this. This would be the basics of a create action. And similar for the update, except instead of calling user.new, we already set our user because we knew the ID and this was part of the before action. So instead, we're just calling if the user gets updated with this user params, then redirect to show the user and then give this message the user was updated successfully. Otherwise, render the edit. So the update is tied to the edit and the create is tied to the new. Then we get to our destroy and the user is set in our destroy action already from our before action set user. So here we're just calling user.destroy and then redirects back to the index action. So to the user's URL and it'll just say that the user was successfully destroyed. So back to the user's prem that we saw in our update and our create actions, this is simply a private method. And this private method is basically saying that the parameters that are passed in, it requires an outside parameter called user. And from within there, we will only allow right access to the first name and the last name. And if you haven't looked at the Rails guides, they are very well written. So I highly recommend going to guides.rubyonrails.org and read through some of this. Also check out episode 54 where I talked about getting started your Ruby on Rails development environment. So if you have a Mac OS computer, you can learn how to set up your Ruby interpreter and then get up and running with your Rails application. Well that's all for this episode. Thank you for watching.